want you to open up a Bible to um, Mark chapter 13. If you're visiting, we are in a longish um, series on the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at Mark chapter 13. We're going to be doing verses 32 uh, to 37 uh, this morning. Uh, before we read, uh, I want to pray for us as we come to God's Word. So let's pray uh, this morning. Father, week after week we come uh, as your people to gather together and pour out our hearts in worship and declare the truth of who you are and how wonderful and majestic and, and loving and forgiving and gracious and kind you you are and have been uh, to us. And week after week we come and open up our Bibles and seek to hear you speak to us. And we ask again this morning that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst us, you would, you would speak to us, you would teach us, you would shape us, you would convict us, you would encourage us that this shaping work that you do in our lives, in our souls, through your word, it will continue again this morning. We, more than anything else, we, we long and need to hear your words to us this morning. And so we pray you'd give us um, minds and hearts that are attentive and open and able to receive and understand what it is the Spirit is making clear to us this morning, that you would uh, help us and strengthen us by your word this morning. We ask it for our good and for your glory. Amen. So last week, uh, if you weren't here, we looked at um, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple. Uh, and I made the, the case to you that I think that basically everything that we looked at up until verse 30 came to fulfillment in AD 70 when the temple in Jerusalem uh, was destroyed. Um, and if you want to contrast last week with this week, Jesus uses a phrase uh, in that passage we looked at last week around um, those days. He says, those days are going to be like this, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and it's those days. And the phrase that he uses in these verses is that day. So we've gone from talking about those days to that day. Jesus makes this shift. That's why we separated this week out from last week. We didn't just lump it all together. Um, it is possible to do that, but we wanted to have a separate week uh, just to talk about that day, that day. There is a day coming when Jesus is coming back. That's, that's what he's teaching about here. Um, and I mentioned last week that all the Bible nerds were going to love this week because we we're going to have all the charts uh, and all the scenarios and stuff, and I've decided not to do that. Not, not, that I, not that I'm chicken of all the charts and reading the tea leaves, and I'd love to do that with some of you, but it's just too much. I, I, I started trying to trying to put together the briefest explanation I could of all the various views of when Jesus is going to come back and how it's all going to go down. <laughs> and I mean, if you think some of the sermons are long, yeah. Now, we were in for like a multi-day seminar on a Sunday, and I just thought there's better ways we can use our time this morning. And this passage, Jesus is actually teaching about something different, and I think we're going to understand why Jesus was quite vague and unclear when he taught about it. He didn't say, guys, these will be the three things that will happen in sequential order. You know, Russia will invade Ukraine. And then, then get ready, because it'll be three weeks from then, 
you know, on the fourth in the month of this, and, and then everyone's ready, got bags packed, like off we go. I don't know why you're packing bags to go to eternity, but anyway, you're not taking anything with you. There's ways in which um, Christians can obsess about this. I think it's worth the consideration, the timing of the second coming, but I'm going to make a compelling case, hopefully, today that I think the exact way Jesus teaches this and the stuff that he leaves out and what he includes is more, uh, is more telling than the, the, the specific instructions that he would give. But there is a day coming. Let's read these verses. I forgot to read this passage already. Let's read Mark 13 from verse 32 through verse 37. Now, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, or at midnight, or at the crane of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. There's a few things that I want us to look at, and I think stand out in this passage. The first thing that I think Jesus makes clear is that his return is going to be a sudden surprise. It's going to be a sudden surprise. He uses that, uh, that picture. We'll dig into it a little bit. He's almost like teaching a little parable or story. He says a master goes away and he leaves the servants in charge and he gives them stuff to do. And he says that the, otherwise, verse 36, otherwise when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. Jesus is making the point that the second coming of Christ is going to be a sudden and secret thing. There's not going to be adverts, you know, like, hey, three weeks left big countdown, you know, like launch, uh, this is happening, it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be a secret, no one will know, Jesus makes the point, and it's worth explaining here, he says the angels in heaven don't know the timing of it, the father knows the timing, and interestingly, he says there that he didn't know the timing, now, this is, this is incarnated Jesus, this is Jesus uh, in human form, doesn't know the time. Then he didn't know. I would say he, he knows now. Glorified, ascended, next to the Father, he knows. It's not like he's sitting there next to the Father thinking, maybe it's today. Like, hey, when is it going to be, Dad? When are we going to do this thing kind of thing? Like, Jesus knows the end from the beginning. It's just that he didn't know when he was here. He, he constrained some of his, um, his, his abilities and knowledge uh, as eternal God in order to be a man. So it's human Jesus didn't know the time, but now he knows the time. But he says no one other than the Father. It's not publicized in heaven. The angels don't know. It's going to be a sudden thing that happens. And, and that's, that's partly why I think it's, um, I mean, I joke about this, about the reading the tea leaves and the charts and stuff. That's largely why I think that kind of stuff is unhelpful because Jesus says it, Quite explicitly, no one's going to know. So it's not like if you study it more and you decode all this stuff in the Old Testament, you figure out the numbers and the generations and all that stuff, then you'll be able to understand it. The whole point is that no one's going to know. You're not going to get there 
with more work and more guessing and more praying, he is going to come suddenly and unexpectedly. Listen to what Paul tells the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Some thieves are not very good thieves, and they announce their arrival, you know. But the picture is that the thieves don't only let you know they want to break into your home. They come like thieves in the night. That's where the phrase comes from. They are, it's a surprise to us. Oh, wow, there's a thief in my house. Like, oh, no, this is not good. Matthew 24, verse 40. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hammer. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. The overwhelming teaching of the New Testament is that the, coming, the second coming of Jesus is going to be a sudden surprise. What, Matthew, what Jesus is teaching in Matthew there. Um, some people are like, all the rapture. I don't know if any of you ever read those left behind books. Uh, it was a thing a few years ago in Christian circles, these left behind books. Where it's kind of a particular approach to the end times kind of thing that incorporates the rapture and the tribulation and the millennium and all this kind of stuff. It's words, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's fine. But the, the left behind, I think they even made left behind movies. Uh, did they? I've never had the privilege of watching any of them. But I think they... Um, one of, the, one of the benefits of those left-behind things is they made it real for people that there is, there is something's going to happen, and it's going to be like that. You're going to be walking along with someone, and poof, you know? Well, hopefully it's going to be you and not them, and, but if they go, <laughs> you know, that's like, oh. So, yeah. if, somebody, if somebody goes and you get left behind, I'm just letting you know now in advance that's not a good sign. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be the left-behind one. That was the whole point of the series. You don't want to be left-behind. But the whole point that we're trying to make is that it's sudden. There's no advance, no warning kind of thing. It's a sudden thing. I, was, I, I would be the first to acknowledge that I don't live like this. And I think I, I would bet that ev almost everyone in this room doesn't live like this. That maybe it could be today. Maybe I'm not going to make it through the sermon. I mean, I hope to, but I don't mind. If I get interrupted and he comes back, that's, that's the reality of the teaching of the scriptures. It's not going to be this like a warning, countdown, like I said. It's going to be a sudden surprise to the whole world. I was joking with Dave the other day. I was saying, I really hope the Lord comes back mid-morning, our time. Because that's like my best time of the day. I don't want him to come early if I haven't had coffee. Um, you know, wake us up 2 in the morning. Someone's going to get the 2 a.m. slot. Somewhere around the world, they're going to get interrupted in the middle of the night. When he comes back, it's just, and I was running this morning, and I was up early going for a run, and I was, I was thinking, because I knew I'm preaching on this, I was thinking, what if it's today? What if, most of you are thinking, it's not today. Calm down, it's not going, but what if it is today? How do you know it's not today? What inside information do you have that it's not going to happen today? This is the message of the New Testament. This is the message of Jesus. He wants his people, listen, in every generation to live as if it was today. 
because you live differently if you think it could be today. You, I mean, you don't, you don't live with all your affairs in order, like ready, 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 and you never get involved in anything. It's like someone invites you for, you know, for dinner on Thursday. It's like, I don't think I can make it. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to have any fixed plans because I think we might be going this week. Right? Like, you have to live your life, you know. I'm not going to save any money because I'm not going to need it because we're going on Thursday. It's like, no, you've got to live in the world. You've got to make plans for retirement. You know, I mean, all the financial investors and all those guys who help people retire, what would they do if, if we lived like this with this over-articulated urgency? You have to live with urgency, but live in the world as if, as if he may not come back. Make long-term plans, but straddle that with living with an absolute urgency that it could be this afternoon. It really could, because that's what Jesus teaches. And I think the reason why Jesus is vague is because he wants his people in every single generation to live with that urgency that it may be our time. It may be today. It may be this week. With no warning, he may come. Because if you don't live like that, with that urgency, what are the alternatives? You live like this is your forever home. We live like this is our forever home. We're so settled and comfortable here. And the teaching of the New Testament, particularly Paul says, you're an exile. You're a stranger. You're a foreigner. You're just passing through. Don't get too attached. Don't get too comfortable. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're heading towards your true home. You're just passing through here. It doesn't mean that you don't get involved. But this, don't settle down here. Don't place too much emphasis on what's happening here. Don't get too cozy. Don't sink all your cash into this planet. You're just passing through, heading to your true home. If we don't live with a sense of urgency, you live disconnected from the purposes of God in the world. You live disconnected from the purposes of God in the world. You live with no urgency in your life. Because, I, I mean, there's a way that you can live with a frantic kind of urgency or you can live with a purposeful urgency. I don't think Jesus wants us living frantic urgency. I think he wants us to live on purpose. What, are, what is the purpose? We're going to dig into this a bit more. Why are you alive? What is the purpose of your life? And how does it connect with the purposes of God? Unless we answer those questions, and those things are front of mind, it's not there. We live very different lives. Just going through life, whatever. Jesus will come back. You know, he said he was going to come back, but these were the last days. This is how some of us think. We won't articulate it, but this is what goes on in our heart. Jesus said, you know, one generation not going to pass away. He says he's coming back soon. He won't leave them as orphans. You know, and then he didn't. And then he didn't. And then he didn't. And it's been a couple thousand years. He still hasn't come back. What's to say it's not another couple of thousand years? If you live like that, it's definitely not going to be in our generation. You lose the urgency. You lose the sense of purpose. You lose, I think, what Jesus wanted each generation to live with. That sense of looking at the clouds. That sense of looking at the clouds, not staring at the clouds, you know, obsessing about it. There's that wonderful interaction in the beginning of Acts where Jesus ascends to heaven and the disciples are standing there looking up into the clouds and the angels say, like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Basically, it's a transliteration. They're like, why are you standing staring up into the sky? The same Jesus who you saw go, he's coming back in exactly the same way you saw him leave. He's going to come back, and he's coming back to the same place. That is true. That's in the Bible. His feet will land on the Mount of Olives. That's what it says in the Scriptures. He will come to the same place that he took off. 
but the point of the angels is don't stand around staring into the sky. What did he tell you to go and do? Yes, he told you to go and wait, to be clothed with power, and then go be his witnesses in the world. Don't stand around staring into the sky, wondering, is it today? Go and get on with the work. Go get on with the job, but keep one eye on the sky. Because if you live with one eye on the sky, it changes everything. It changes everything about how you live. I don't know when the last time you gave consideration to the second coming of Jesus was, but it's not a normative pattern, I don't think, amongst many believers to live with that sense of urgency. And hopefully this morning we will leave with a greater sense of urgency. That's the first thing. It will be a sudden and secret when Jesus arrives the second time. But his main point in this passage, and if you're making notes, you can scribble in your Bible, you can underline the word uh, alert, appears three times in one short little passage. In this translation, in another translation, it may have a different word. But they'll use the same word, I would think, consistently. It says, watch. Jesus says, be alert. Be alert. Stay alert. Stop dorsing. Don't nod off. Wake up. Be alert. Now, he's telling the disciples this. And he didn't come back in their lifetime. But it's there. And he says in verse 36, sorry, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. What he said to them, he says to everyone, be alert. This is the message for every future generation. Stay alert. Because if you lapse into a spiritual sleepiness, you miss the urgency and you don't live the way Jesus is wanting us to live. This is his main point. In what ways are we meant to be alert? Alert about what? Alert about what? World events? I don't think that's the main thing that he wants us being alert about. The mo- if you do a word search, in the New Testament, for alert and watchfulness. 90% of the time, you're going to see it connected to one thing. I'm going to give you a couple of the verses where you see it, um, and you can go and do the rest of the homework yourselves. The 90% of the time, the connection between alert and watchfulness is connected to prayer. He says, stay alert so that you can pray. Be watchful so that you can pray. Be watchful and alert in your praying. That's the connection. He wants his people to be a praying people, expectant, not just sitting around like in a monastery praying, praying and working and waiting and watching, ready for his coming. Colossians 4 verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Ephesians 6 verse 18. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. And stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. 1 Peter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, alert. Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, in every generation, wants his people alert and watchful and praying, watching and waiting, praying for yourself and for others. This is the main work. I'm going to say this clearly so no one confuses. The main work is prayer. Because God does in prayer what only he can do. 
praying is the hardest thing that you will do as a Christian. Somebody say amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm amongst friends. Praying is the hardest thing. That's why we don't do it. Devote yourself to a life of prayer, and you'll see how difficult it is to do it. It's, easy to, it's easier to give, to serve, to study, to read, to love, to whatever, than to consistently pray for yourself and for others. Because it is the most powerful thing that can happen. We are enlisting God's help in seeing the kingdom come to bear on the earth. And you be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Prayer is the hardest thing. And that's why Jesus says, be watchful and pray. Watch out for yourself so that you don't fall asleep. You, you can't help but miss the humor in this. Uh, hope the Lord doesn't take, uh, isn't offended by this. I read a lot of humor into this when Jesus is telling them, be alert so that you don't fall asleep. I mean, him and the disciples, they've had some experience in this falling asleep thing. Do you remember? Huh? And there's still more coming. He's told them, be, you know, don't fall asleep, be alert. A few days later, stay with me, stay awake, pray. He leaves, comes back, sleeping. Wake up, slap, slap, hey, come, pray for me. Off he goes, he's in absolute distress. Comes back, what's happening? Asleep again. So just days after the warning to be watchful and to stay awake and not fall asleep, they are, exhibit A, falling asleep when they should be praying. I can't remember who it was that said, Christians get things confused, that we're sleeping when we should be praying. We're often sleeping when we should be praying. And we're up, fretting when we should be sleeping. And the effect of prayer and resting in God is that you get to sleep when you should be sleeping, and you're praying instead of sleeping. It's not fretting. It's not anxiety riddled lives. It's prayerful watchfulness. What else does he want us to be alert towards? Well, I think the one thing he wants us to be alert and watchful for is that our, our hearts don't become hardened by what the Hebrew, writer to the Hebrews calls sins deceitfulness. That your heart doesn't become hardened. Let me read it for you from Hebrews 3. You can see what I'm talking about. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Watch out. Watch out, brothers and sisters that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. This is the, this is the pattern that sin, that we're warned against, that sin deceives you. Sin deceives you and you get muddled and stuff and end up losing your way and your heart becomes hardened, and some will fall away from love for Jesus. He says you have to watch out that you aren't deceived. You have to watch out for yourself, but it says you watch out for any of you. It's a collective, it's a group effort. That's why we're so big on things like community groups and getting involved in men's and women's ministry and discipleship. The, the Christian life is not meant to be walked alone. You are meant to have people in your life who are watching out for you. They are together with you, helping you understand and watch us. Hey, Brendan, I think you might have a bit of a blind spot in this area. You have become blinded. Sin has deceived you. You can't see what's going on. You are in danger of your heart becoming hard and you drifting away from love for Jesus. 
You need people around you who will walk that road with you and who you can do that for others. We are alert and watchful around sin's deceitfulness. Another area where I think Jesus wants us, and I mentioned this at the men's breakfast, is that the reality of the world that we live in. A.W. Tozer said that the reality of the world that we live in is that this is a battleground, not a playground. And depending on your view of the world, if you see this world as a playground, you will live differently. If you see it as a battleground, you will live differently. If you, live as, if you see the world as a playground, the main aim of your life is to, is, is, is to extract as much joy and pleasure and to travel the world and have a lacquer jaw and kind of thing, go through life, burn all your cash, live for yourself, lacquer, play hard because this is a playground and you play at a playground. But if this world is a battleground, you live differently. You're enlisted in a war. There is a spiritual war happening now for the eternity of the souls of people, for the eternity of people, yours and others. And if you live like you are engaged, you're enlisted in a battle. You pray, you give, you serve, you live differently, and you don't fall asleep in the middle of a battle. No one falls asleep in the middle of a war when you're on the battlefield. You can't. because You're like, okay, I'm not going to sleep. I'll sleep when I get off the battlefield. Your, your senses are trained for battle. And I'm not, I don't mean that Christians should always be on. Some of you are thinking, yeah, you know, you're A-type personalities. You're like, ah, you know, like you battle to switch off. Like you just need to calm down. You need to listen to what Andrew said. Take my yoke upon you. You know, learn from me. I'm, <laughs> find rest for your soul. Take a day off. Some of you need to hear that, that message. But some of us need to hear, you are in a battleground. And the spiritual sleepiness, I think, is part of why Jesus mentioned these words is to wake us up. And I think, in love, some of us need a wake up this morning. You have become spiritually sleepy. You are living in a playground mentality when there's a battle raging. And it's evidenced by how you live. Your prayerlessness is the first diagnostic that you live in a playground mentality instead of a battleground. Because people who realize they're in a war are crying out for help. God help me. God help me. God help those. This is serious stuff. If it's just a playground, all our prayers just sound like, Lord, please give me more of this. Please make this happen. Please, you know, love me, comfort me, hold me. It's all going to be fine. Because life is all just about having fun and going through unscathed. Spiritual sleepiness. I'm convinced that if, if um, somebody wrote a book that said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, um, which is true. But I think if the devil can't make you bad, he'll just make you distracted and sleepy. Not necessarily busy doing stuff, You'll just be distracted with other things. You'll find other things more important. And a spiritual sleepiness will overtake you. There will be a lack of vibrancy and urgency about the things of the Lord, about the work of the kingdom happening in the world. And the devil doesn't need you to be bad. Satan doesn't need you to be whatever. He just needs you distracted with lesser things and spiritually sleepy. And you lose any effectiveness and potency that you're meant to walk with as a believer in Jesus. We are wired for distraction. There it comes again, my tirade against phones. If, if your phone is your best friend, you are wired for distraction. Instead of thinking, 
in a battleground mentality about the thoughts of the Lord and soaking ourselves in the Scriptures, we're losing our minds and our way in our phones, endlessly distracting ourselves from the reality that's around us. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, wow, look at that person's life. Oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And just becoming spiritually sleepy. And the call of the Scriptures is to wake up. To wake up to the reality of what's going on around us. Listen to how Paul describes this as he writes to Titus. In Titus 2, verse 11 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Was arguing that you, when you live looking at that and waiting for the blessed hope, it changes the way that you live now. We're instructed to live uh, in, in godly ways and deny worldly lusts and nonsense here because we are a people ready and waiting for Him. Our hope is fully set in the fact that Jesus will come back. The last thing that I think Jesus makes clear here in this story of the man leaving the house and leaving others in, in, um, in charge. It says he, or let me just read it, it's like a man who went on a journey, left his house, gave authority to his servants, and gave each one his work and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. That is an important line. He gave each one. He gave each one work. That's why I think this passage is here, partly, is a reminder to us that if you're here, if you are still here, you have a reason to be alive. What is the purpose of your ongoing existence? The Lord has not called you home yet, and He hasn't come back yet. So the work that He's given, what is that? Now, I would be the first to say there are general things that I think the Lord calls everyone to do. It's not like the calling of your life is like a tightrope, and you need to pray fast, put out a fleece, you know, do or whatever, a whole bunch of incantations to find that unique, particular thing that the Lord wants you to do. It's a bit more like a highway, and you can pick a lane. There are just general things that we should all be encouraged and we are commanded to do. But I do think that Scriptures teach, and Jesus teaches here. He gives the servants. He says to Dave, Dave, I'm leaving you here. You're one of my servants. I'm giving you work. Erwin, I'm giving you work. Andy, I'm giving you work. Sizwe, I'm giving you work. Erica, I'm giving you work. And the master gives you work. He gives you authority. That's amazing. He gives you authority. And he gives you work. And he doesn't want to come back and find you bobbing around on the lalo, <laughs> having outsourced the work to someone else. That's the best picture I have in my mind. Like, it's just like Big Brother House. You know, like if you watch Big Brother. Which is the one where they're all like 24-7 on TV? It's Big Brother, hey, where they're all like stuck in the house there. They just get up to nonsense all day. They're all trapped in that house, bobbing around on the lalo, playing games in the garden. That's honestly how I think some of us live as Christians. He's given us work to do, and we are bobbing around on the lalo, yelling to the kitchen, you know, top me up with a drink. What is the work that Jesus has given you to do? Why are you still here? Why are you still here? 
if you can't answer that question, you're going to live a purposeless life. You will muddle your way through life, confused and bewildered, sort of with a vague sense of why you might be here, but no laser-like um, ability to lean into why God has left you here. What is the unique things that he wants you to do, how he wants you to be a blessing to the world, to serve his purposes in the world? Because he's left you here with work to do, and he wants you to do it and be busy with it. Part, some of the, again, the A-type people are like, absolutely, there's work to do. That can you land the sermon? I need to get out there. I've got stuff to do today, you know, like, the, the, go, go, go. Part of his work. Part of the work of Jesus was what? Rest. Was Sabbath rhythms. Some of you A-typers need to hear that. You need to take a day off. The work of Jesus included rest and prayer and time enjoying his Father. Not just running hard like that. It's part of it is being busy doing the work. But Jesus somehow, he models for us this perfect balance of knowing and doing exactly what the Father's asked him to do and a large part of what the Father asked him to do was to spend time with the Father and to not burn himself out. To live in a sustainable rhythm, a Sabbath rhythm. Jesus observed Sabbath rhythms. The Son of God in the world rested and worked. Please don't think that you can run headlong seven days a week, go, 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 and think that you are going to be able to faithfully follow Jesus or even fulfill the calling that he's given you to do, the work that he's given you. He did not give you work that should crush you and exhaust you. Yeah, it's going to be tiring at times because it's work, but not running headlong at 120 k's an hour. Why are you here? I don't know the answer to that, but I do want to provoke you, and I do want to cause you to have a bit of a crisis, to go and sit and to explore and to think and to ask others, why are you still here? And not answer in vague generalities, I'm here to love people. Everyone's called to love. Why are you here? What has God put in you? What is the confluence of your abilities and your opportunities and the things that you love? Somewhere in between, that triangulation is going to be clarity around why God has called you. God has not called me here to be a doctor. I don't like needles, blood, hospitals, dead people, none of that stuff. I'm not called to be a doctor off the list. I don't like Excel spreadsheets. I can't count. I'm not called to be an accountant off the list. I have very limited specific gifts, but I know why I'm here. I wake up each day, each week I live with clarity around why God still allows me to walk on the planet. And it's life-giving to know why God has still got you here. Because I'm doing, I feel in a very real sense that I'm doing the work he's given me to do. Now, don't confuse this that it's like you're thinking, okay, but Doug, you're a full-time Christian. It's easy for you. I live in the, you know, I'm a secular person. It's, my work is disconnected from the purposes of God. If, you, if that's your thinking, you have way more work to do to understand that what you do during the week is massively, massively significant. That's what God, your service and your work in the world is your way of worshiping Jesus and adding 
to the world and their often, the way in which you work and the work that you do, the character in which you do, and the connections you make with people. All of these things work together and the way you serve in the church and the spiritual gifts God has given you. They all come together in the work that God has given you, the work Jesus has left you with to do. As we close, let me give two points of application here. First one, if you are here this morning, or you're watching this, you wouldn't be able to say wholeheartedly that you are a follower of Jesus. You have a different question to ask, or to answer. In Hebrews 9, verse 27 and 28, it says this, And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. It's going to be a wonderful day when he comes back for those who are waiting for him. And if you haven't yet placed your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus, you're not yet waiting for him. You are not the, you're not in that crowd who he is bringing salvation for. But you are destined, it says there, to live once and to die once. And after your death, you will face judgment. You will stand before the one who made you. And you will have to articulate and explain how you responded to the person of Jesus. What will you do with your sin for the ways in which you fell short of his perfect standard? And those who faced faith in Jesus, it will be a celebration. Because we will hear those words. And Jesus will be on our side defending for us. He says, no, I know, I know, I know Doug. I know Doug died for his sins. He's placed faith in me. And if you haven't yet done that, I would urge you and plead with you, that day is coming. And you don't know when it's going to come. You need to be ready for that day, having placed your faith in him for salvation. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I'll leave you with those questions and plead with you to revisit this passage again and again this week and ask God to give you an urgency, an urgency. Maybe it's this week. Maybe this is our last service at Pathways Community Church. And our next service will be around the throne room in heaven. Maybe. You don't know that it won't. And I urge you to live with a greater urgency. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. And only you are able to articulate and know in what ways you need to respond and change and repent and rearrange your life that you live more like an enlisted soldier than someone who's a tourist having the time of their life. And may God help us to give ourselves fully to this world while keeping one eye on the cloud. Let's pray together. Jesus, we don't, know, we don't know when you're going to come back. We know you are coming back. And we are so, we are so grateful that you are coming back. It's a, it's a demonstration of exactly who you are. And we, we so long for that day. We do, Father. We, 
we long for that day when you are going to consummate all of these things and make everything new, make everything right, put an end to sin and suffering and death and the full triumphant effect of Jesus, your victory on the cross are going to be felt in all creation. And we long for that day. We say together with those throughout the ages, come, Lord Jesus. We long for your coming. Not because we're just weary of this world, but we long for the perfection of the kingdom of God. And until that day, we pray that you would help us, Father, to live with a sense of urgency. That it may be today. It may be this week. And that it would change the way that we live. It would change how watchful and alert we are. It would change the way that we pray. It would change the way that we live our lives and what we do every day. Thank you that you've left us with work to do, and I pray for clarity and wisdom and discernment for each of us as to why we're still here, and that we'd throw ourselves into our work with new, a new application, a new vigor, a new vitality, because we know that we're doing it for you, and it's the reason why you've left us here. We pray that you would help us in these things, and I pray for those who may not have placed their full faith in you, that today they would respond to your call and the offer of forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ, that they would be ready for that day whenever it comes. We ask that you would help us with these things in Jesus' name. Amen.